Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. Hey everybody, welcome to Snark Monkey number 29 with Jeff Greenstein. I feel like I say this every episode because I, I do enjoy every episode, every person I've talked to. This is a really special one. Jeff is such a warm and open and inviting and super smart guy and very, very funny too. Jeff is a writer, producer, and director. He has been a part of some, well... A little show you might know called Friends. Maybe you've heard of a little something called Will and Grace, perhaps. Desperate Housewives, anyone? Uh, most recently directed many episodes of the hit Mom. And, uh, oh, Partners? Well, you don't remember that one, do you? But, but I do. It was a very good show that should have lasted longer than it did, and he talks about that a little bit. But if Partners had lasted any longer than it did then the world would have been deprived of John Cryer in Two and a Half Men. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Jeff is awesome. And what's really most interesting about his story, so much so than maybe anybody else's, is that he began his life and into his adolescence and college years with absolutely zero inclination to go into the creative arts at all until his life kind of turned on a dime. And where he got his inspiration from is so interesting. But part of what Jeff is all about is just this openness to adventure and new experiences. Um, I just, I found him so warm and inviting and funny. But also when listening back to this, I, I, I hear myself because he's so freaking like super intelligent. Unlike me, uh, you will hear me attempting to choose my words so carefully so I don't sound like a big dummy. But we did find some common ground, especially with, in our younger lives, a personal loss that we both had at around the same time in our lives. And, and, we, and we just dig in a little bit about what it takes to be creative, what it takes to, to guide people who are creative, the environment that works best for him versus other people. And just his take on life is so fascinating. I, I found this really uh, fun and inspiring. Just a really good episode. And, and a good guy. Yeah, again, choosing my words so carefully. Good guy. You know, look, one-syllable words can be Fine. Okay, let's just listen to Jeff Greenstein. <laughs> Stark Monkey number 29. Enjoy. We're starting. Yeah, sure. Okay. No, good. Uh, welcome, Jeff. Thank uh, you. Let's get the Bob Cushell thing out of yeah, the way. Yeah, let's get that. We should. Because it seems like half my guests on this podcast have to address that. It's the elephant in the room. It kind of is. Um, and Bob apparently has impacted many people. I was going to say touched many people, but that just 
That's probably also true. Well, it, it may. If we had his police record, we could probably yeah. tell. Um, so let let's get that out of the way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What I do mean, you want to know? How well, I, know I, him? I I guess I just want to know why he has seemed to have so many friends, and yet all these friends seem to resent him in some way. <laughs> Bob is like my little brother. I just love him. I love him, and I met him. Uh, let me see how many years ago this would be. This was when I was on Dream On, so we're going back to the early nineties, okay. I guess. And um, that was his first kind of big writing break. It right? was, I guess, he had done some Nickelodeon show or something like that. He had been writing for professionally for I think two or three years before I met him. But uh, um, I was, uh, I had worked my way up from staff writer on Dream On to running the show, and we were looking to bolster our staff. And to be honest, we had reached that point in a television season where your energy is starting to flag. Mm -hmm. And so we had a couple of writers in to meet, and they were all very nice. And then Bob came in, and you've met him. He is like, I mean, there's, (laughs) if energy is what you want, he is your guy. And he was just funny and, you know, buoyant and boyish and hilarious. And I just said, I got to have that guy. I just like immediately was like, I got to have that guy in the room. Because I felt that not only was he going to bring good stuff creatively, but he was going to energize everybody. And that's exactly what he did. It's actually interesting to hear that story because uh, on Bob's podcast, he he didn't talk so much about... he didn't talk about me at all. No. (laughs) He talks about the horrible situation, you know, his, his... His favorite show in the world, yeah, Larry, Larry Sanders, Sanders yeah. where he had a terrible meeting, yeah, and decided to go dream on, and it because he did say it was a very much more positive experience. It felt like it was a good fit. Um, so, but we didn't get that kind of whole perspective yeah, on it. I mean, I was so. I mean, I think he came into a very welcoming room. I yeah. would say because we were eager for help, and I think probably the experience he had over at Sanders were people who were like, "Yeah, you know, you want to come pray at the temple? You yeah, can prove it." Um, and uh, we were much more interested in just like we just wanted people who wanted to come and play, which all my best writers' room experiences have been. I was going to say, is that an environment that you both gravitate to and try and set a tone for? It's, I mean, it's critical not only in a writers' room, but as I've moved from writing into directing, I think that it's the most important thing a director does is just create a safe space where people can try stuff, and that there's no sense of like censure uh, if you you know pitch something that doesn't go over, or if you try something as an actor that doesn't get a laugh. You don't, like, get that burning feeling in the pit of your stomach. You just feel like, oh, I'll try something else. That seems common sense that you would want to create a welcoming environment. But there are those who do not do that. I'm sure you've worked for people with people who seem to be set on beating people down, you know, ruling by with an iron fist. I, my own Experience has been mercifully free of that sort of thing. But I do think, look, there's an entirely different school of thought, which is terrorize people. Okay? Terrorize people. I mean, that exists. Get them scared. Right. Make them prove themselves. I have heard of writer's rooms where you don't open your mouth unless you have the home run. Right? Right. And so maybe you get a lot of home runs. Okay? But what you also have is a room that's quiet a lot of the time. Right. And I feel like... The rooms that I've been in, it's always about like someone pitches something, someone builds on it, someone pitches a spin on it, someone comes from the you know grassy knoll with something you've never heard before. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, there's an energy and a light in the room that's exciting and makes everyone feel right. like this was theirs. And so when it airs, everyone feels like they were a little part of it. Those are the experiences that have been best for me. But no, you can terrorize people into really good work. Yeah. I mean, if they're scared out of their minds about losing their job or... They feel like everyone in the room is smarter and more impressive than they are, and 
they're aware that they're the low man on the totem pole. I mean, you can get good work out of people. It's just it's just not my personality. Yeah, I guess you know, even in in the room you're talking about, the one where you know people are pitching ideas. I think you also have the mindset in that one. You have to have the mindset of. I could pitch a thousand things; they could all get shot down. I have to be prepared to be bettered by somebody else, and, and you know, and 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 you have to be okay with that. Yeah, I mean, as opposed to holding tight with the one great idea. Yeah, that yeah you, you can't. So it's you a can't. different. It's a whole different. It, it was tough for me because I've obviously. I mean, I do. You know, particularly earlier in my career, I really loved my ideas. <laughs> And it's hard when you love your ideas so much mm-hmm. to see them changed or reshaped or to feel like maybe the discussion is going off your idea into some other direction. That's hard, if, especially if you're young and you really want to try and prove yourself and you have an ego and so forth. It's difficult. But what you come to understand, you know, to use the number, I'm going to use a lot of cliches today. Great. Okay. All right. The rising tide lifts all boats. So in other words, if the thing gets better, it makes you look good. It makes everybody look good. Yeah, that's true. And so... As long as you're part of the process, you're still going to get credit for being in that process. Well, Larry, that's the key thing. Yeah. Because if you become too intransigent and if you become too in love with the sound of your own voice, you actually take yourself out of the process. Right. Because people don't want to hear from you. Or you're saying the same thing over and over again, so you're not actually moving the debate forward. So the thing that's great is if you can kind of get in the sandbox and play with everybody because then it's just – it becomes fun. It becomes less like work. It becomes more like a game of like topping each other. It's always seemed to me that that's the best environment, and I've – even in radio, I've been in both types. And it just seems a happier environment just for me and for most people, I think, in any creative capacity, a happier environment – just makes you want to do more, I, I, I guess. Well, look, like I said, there, there are schools of thought on this. Yeah. I'm not advocating for the other one. I'm just saying it has been known to work. Right, right. Uh, the, the terror school has been known to work. <laughs> but I'm an extremely sensitive person, and I get my feelings hurt really easily. And, uh, and, I, and also I have a glass head, so everyone always knows what I'm thinking. Ah. So it, what that <laughs> adds up to is that it's hard for me to operate in circumstances where it isn't nourishing like yeah. that, where it isn't creative and freewheeling. And so, you know, I have developed, I think, over time sort of an antenna for sensing when people are going to give me the good version of the experience versus the bad version. Right. And if I've had a really good ride in TV, which I believe I have, I mean, I've worked for lengthy periods oh, of you've time done all great right. shows. Yeah. If that's happened, it's because I've had a good sense of, like, who's going to value me on their team and who I will value. So, you know, I put myself in circumstances. Will and Grace was one. Friends was one. Dream On definitely was one. Desperate Housewives was one. These were all shows where there was a lot of really good freewheeling give and take and also uncommonly nice people that you could stand to spend 14 hours a day in a room. Yeah. Or in some cases, 24 hours a day <laughs> in a room with. Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's I think when you have the uh, option anyway to uh, well, actually kind of like with Bob's story, he certainly aspired to be part of something as great as Larry Sanders, but he knew he was going to be a better fit on, on Dream Yeah, Home. and that's a hard decision to make. Yeah. You know, when you're a young writer and you're like, you see two roads diverge like that, and you are so sure that one of them is exactly the show you've always dreamed of writing for, and then the other one is a completely unknown circumstance. Right. Um, I mean, I have had an internal compass that has been pretty unfailing in telling me which is the right road, which is not always, by the way, the most glamorous or remunerative or uh, visible or, you know, it's not always that. But I've I've always had a good sense. I was actually thinking about this this morning because I'm seeing a lot of really wonderful reviews 
for the Mom season finale, which is a show that I don't write, but I've directed a number of them. Oh, okay, uh, eleven of them. When uh, I became friendly with Chuck Lorre, and when he showed me the pilot, uh, the script of the pilot, I thought that show was special. I just knew it. I just knew it. And when I went to the filming of the pilot of that show, I was like, "This is going to be something." I don't know if it's going to be a hit. It's doing some really edgy subject matter. It's approaching, you know, addiction and recovery, which are things that are, while universal, not everyone is comfortable with. And not in a... I thought what has been interesting, because I heard Allison Janney on the radio the other day doing an interview for the finale, that there are jokes in the show, but they're not... It's 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 a fine line. They're not making light of issues. No, they're not. The no. issues exist, and they make jokes around those issues. But the issues stay very real. Yeah, it's very grounded. They yeah. don't, uh, you know, they don't um, they don't shy away from the darker and more complex components of that subject matter. And right. that's I think that's one of the reasons people are waking up to the fact this is a really good show. Right. But I could tell being on that set, feeling the energy, and feeling the way that the audience responded, and Meeting the writers and seeing what their give and take was like. I was like, this would be a cool train to be on. Yeah, I don't. I, I, it's the same experience I had when I was. I worked on the Friends pilot, like all the way back to when it was just a script when they were casting it. I knew it was going to be something interesting. I did not know. I have no ability to forecast whether things become hits. It's an astounding coincidence that some of the things that I liked have turned into big hits. But mostly, I just have a sense of like, is this a place that is going to be fun? And where I can make a difference and where my shoulders will be down and not up. Right. You know, where I'm not going to be tense, where I'm going to be loose and I'm going to feel free and I can make and my contribution will be valued. You know, so it was interesting. I was thinking about that. I thinking about mom. I always knew it was going to be a good show. I always knew that it was going to be special. And it's been so gratifying to see how that has played out over the last two years is I think it's the most one of the most interesting comedies on television, period. I like hearing your philosophy on this. We're going through this period with our son who has graduated from a prestigious theater school. Yeah. He went to BU. He's he, right. he's he's in New York. He's doing the New York thing. He's waiting tables. And he's and he got this momentum with his music, which yeah. was not what he studied. And because we're very close with him, he had to kind of come to us, and, and these were not his words, but it was, I know you spent $150,000 right. to send me to theater yeah. school. Is it okay if I work on my album because I feel like I'm getting momentum? And and my wife and I, who are totally supportive of that, are still, you know, I think even she and I are struggling in at this point in our lives of what is the stuff we're watching our son because our son is follow. He's always had such good instincts. He's He's got very much. Ma- Mature instincts, and I guess more importantly, he he recognizes where his passion is and what's going to make him happy. And in this era of touchy-feely parents where, right, right. where you encourage your kids yeah. to follow that passion because a lot of us didn't, um, we're going, I think that's the way to go. And it's it's funny because if you can pare away all the other trappings of w- what life lays upon you, it, it really does – it's it's sitting there telling you, yeah, it may not make the most sense. It may not make the most financial sense right now. But there is usually something that is very obvious that says this is the thing I have to do right now. Yeah, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm that's a really good story, and and I love hearing that you are supporting his sense of adventure because you know I I, I wish I could know which I've been reading so many showbiz biographies lately. I don't know which one this fell into. I want to say this is John Cryer's book, but I'd hate to be wrong about that. But let's say for the moment that it is. Okay, good. When he said, you know, he actually came from a family where both of his parents were actors. 
And uh, I think it was like, I want to say that they, like when he told his parents, like, this is something I want to try when he was like 17, 18 years old, said, this is what I want to, I want to try it. I think it was his father who said to him, this is the time to try. Yep. yep. You know, like if you're going to do it, do it when you're 17, 18, 22, 23. It's so much harder to do it when you're 37, 45. <laughs> right. You know, and so, and I just, that's, that sounds so obvious in a way, but at the same time, it's, I think when you're a parent and you want your son to have the most frictionless and easy road possible. Yeah, it's you want it all to work out. Yeah, and sometimes it's hard to support those choices that seem so unorthodox. I mean, I went to college as a computer science major, okay? And by the spring of my freshman year, I was having a sense that that probably wasn't going to be the path for me. And by sophomore year, I left the College of Engineering and enrolled in the College of Liberal Arts, and I had to make the phone call to my dad to say, it's not going to be that. It's going to be something else. And at the time, I, well, I went from computer science to art history to film to film and dance. <laughs> Fortunately, I made this announcement before dance came along. But I said, you know, I, uh, I think I want to be a filmmaker. And uh, that was, I mean, this was the, the mid-'80s. That was an absurd declaration. Um, was it? Now, wait, now, let's go back a little bit to your history. I want to. Yes. I want to circle back around. Oh, okay, to this. Sure. You, you were born in Atlanta, Georgia. Yes. How long did you live in in Georgia? Well, uh, with the exception of a couple of years in Wheaton, Maryland, uh, the first sixteen years of my life. All right. So, I mean, I grew up in Atlanta. I consider that my hometown. Now, interesting. I, Give me a sense of what growing up in Atlanta is like. Were you? Is, was it suburban? What'd yeah, you, what I did grew your parents up in the suburbs? Do? My uh, my uh, dad was a stockbroker okay. um, for twenty five years. Um, my mother was a housewife. She had four kids really fast. Me, and then three years later, my sister, and then three years later, twins. Oh wow! Um, my mom had aspirations to be a writer. Um, she, writing had always been really important to her. She was always creative. Um, was always, you know, just making things, doing things, volunteering. She was kind of restless, I think, in a way. But my dad was the breadwinner. It was a traditional 70s family. Yeah. I grew up in the Atlanta suburbs in Sandy Springs, um, outside I-285, if you know Atlanta at all. <laughs> Being outside I-285 in the early 70s was like you lived in, you know, you were out in the suburbs. Oh, really? Um, yeah, so you were not part of you didn't feel part of Atlanta proper necessarily. No, going to the city was like a thing. It was like a going big deal. downtown to the Varsity, world's largest drive-in restaurant, <laughs> was like a big treat, you know. I lived in the suburbs yeah. and even, you know, one I went to um I went to an Episcopalian private school from 4th to 8th grade called the Lovett School, which was uh, not far from Buckhead, which again is not the city, but it was at least a little closer to Midtown. Right. And then high school, I went to Riverwood High School, which was, uh, you know, my local public element, my, my local public high school. All right. So take the South out of it. This yeah. is your standard middle class suburban kind of upbringing. Yeah, I would say better than middle class. My upper father made a class, really good living. I, I, I think of it in retrospect, and I think I had a pretty privileged upbringing, right. actually. Um Especially considering there were four of us, um, my father worked really, really hard. So I, I can't really claim myself as part of America's working class. <laughs> <laughs> I gave you an opportunity there. Yeah, I know, but you know, I, hard I can't. scrabble I upbringing. Gotta be true to myself. Up from the bootstraps. <laughs> um, so, besides mom's bent for maybe writing, where did the creative streak come in you? Was it was it a child of TV? You know, I, you know watching... I watched the same TV shows that everyone in my generation watched. I watched The Brady Bunch, All in the Family, Rhoda, Phyllis, Maud, Mary Tyler Moore. Uh, you know, I, I grew up on half-hour comedy. I had Hogan's Heroes. I remember, you know, 
the you know we would memorize the names of the cast and stuff but mm-hmm. I, tv writing was an absurd i mean that just was so off the map i liked watching tv because tv was funny yeah um I loved uh, Peanuts cartoons. I was just obsessed with uh, Charles Schultz. I loved Tom Lehrer. My, my dad had Tom Lehrer's first two albums, and so I was completely obsessed with his stuff. So I loved com- – I remember seeing you know Annie Hall when I was 13, and that was like a huge, huge impact on me. But uh, that was all just what I found entertaining. The prospect of a career in it was completely – So no aspirations for that? You weren't doing mm-hmm. drama in school? No, I was not a drama no, kid no at plays, all. No plays, no nothing? No. I um I was the same generation as um, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. And when they talk about that 10,000 hours in Malcolm Gladwell, they talk about how Bill Gates went to a school that had a mainframe computer, which in the late 70s and early 80s was an anomaly. I went to a school like that. And I saw my first computer when I was, I think, nine. And I would say between the ages of nine and 16, my entire bent was science and math. Wow. Now – don't get me wrong. I liked to laugh. I liked to go to movies. My mother, you know, loved art. And so we would go to New Orleans to see the King Tut show. Or, you know, I took, I remember taking an art class at the High Museum just because I think my parents wanted me to be a well-rounded person. Right. Um, but but uh, it, that was just leisure activity it was for you. Just, it was yeah, just, there was no, it was just what I mean, you did when you and, were. And I did, I was a word kid. I loved to write and I was a voracious reader. I remember my mom, the local public library had a rule you can only check out four books at a time. And I was like 10 or 11. My mom got a special dispensation from the local library that I could take out 16 books at a time because I was just a voracious reader. What were you reading? Oh, everything. Yeah. Everything. Fiction and nonfiction, books about mathematics, novels, anything that struck my fancy. I just read – I mean I was – I probably subscribed to 10 or 12 magazines in school, everything from Scientific American to MAD. I mean it was – the, the whole spectrum. Of so things. you're a full on science nerd, big yeah. reader. Yeah. How is your social life in school? Well, I was OK. I should also throw in here that that I was a bit of a smarty. And so <laughs> my okay, parents. Well, I mean, smarty. Well, I was like a really bright kid. Yeah. And so my parents and I think my mom drove this um, thought it would be a good idea that I start first grade at four. Uh, I never went to kindergarten. So I went straight from nursery school to first grade. Um, so when most of my peers were six, I was four. And when most of my peers were 14, I was 12. And, you know, that, (laughs) that made my entire childhood anomalous. Two, a two year gap as an adult seems like nothing. Yeah. But, but but in those years, it's, it's the widest gulf you can think of. Just think about the distance between 14 and 16. It's just, it's astounding. I mean, I have a 17 year old son now. Now when my, when my son is, is finishing his junior year in high school, when, uh, when I was his age, I was finishing my freshman year in college. Yeah. Um, it's a big, it's a big gap, and so, uh, so as a result of being a bit of a smarty, as a result of being the Jewish kid at the Episcopalian private school, as a result of being, you know, think about it, like athletically, how was I going to keep up with those kids? So I was always. I always think in the makeup of any artistic personality, there is something in your upbringing that pushes you to the edges of the circle. And I always felt I was on the edge of the circle. Mm -hmm. And I think it made me an observer and, you know, someone who became a bit, this is going to sound really pretentious, but, you know, you are a student of human behavior. You watch the way people relate to one right. another because you're not in the mix. Well, and also you're looking, because I saw my son do this. He, we were always worried that he wasn't very social, but he had two or three friends, but he was always the one on the outside. You just saw him watching. That was he me. wasn't a, he wasn't like a, a wallflower, but yeah. he was, he was really, he was like, where's my in? 
who are the right people yeah. and um I mean and that I, makes sense. Yeah, I mean, did, I, um, did it did did you have friendships? Did you find I did. people I had at that th- age? I had three or four close friends, yeah. but they were all fringy. I mean, I was friends yeah. with the one black kid. I was friends with the one Lutheran kid. Yeah. I mean, in uh, in various ways, I was. I mean, I listen. The, the 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 most stereotypic way is to say that I was a big nerd. I I don't think that I was a big nerd. I just think I was kind of socially awkward for all the reasons that you might expect. <laughs> um, for all the reasons that I've recounted. Um, but, uh, you know, I always felt like a little bit of an alien. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and at a certain point in my trajectory, I went from feeling like that was somehow holding me back to feeling like let your freak flag fly. Mm-hmm. And so at a certain point, and this happened toward high school and definitely when I got to college, I was very into being myself. And I just kind of accepted like... This is who I am. This is the hand that's dealt. Okay, because you could stop. have gone. You could have totally just kept it all in and stayed on the fringes, right? And, and just been really quiet and and shut yourself off. And I had done that. Yeah. But you know, the truth is, and it's funny because I find myself giving this advice to young people: find your tribe, right? Yeah. You know, I found a crowd. You know, you know that line from uh, Breakfast Club, you know, demented and sad, but social. <laughs> I had my crowd. Okay, I had a group of people that I felt comfortable with. Right. Um, but I also felt as I moved from high school into college that, uh, you know, uh, that it was time to explore and to try everything. You know, apropos of what we were talking about with your son, I right. felt that college was a time, even though I was on what, you know, could have been perceived as a very vocational track, I felt it was a time to try stuff. I mean, I, was, I went to school in Boston. I went to Tufts University. I was in a big city which was culturally enriched as opposed to Atlanta in the 70s, which I felt was somewhat culturally impoverished. It's not so much anymore, but it was then. And so I wanted to explore. So I was going to galleries and going to performances yeah. and going to rock clubs. Oh, and you go- couldn't be in a better place than oh, Boston to experience almost anything you would want. Plus, because of their uh, – my son went to BU. So many colleges, so oh, many young insane. people, yeah. this vibrant scene of music and art and history. And you're walking by a church that's 200 years old. and Yeah. Yeah, and there's just this richness to it. It's I, a great place the, to mean, be in college. I, you know, we just did the college tour with our son, and he felt the same affinity for yeah. Boston that I did. I, I don't know if I'll end up going to school there or not, but it just reminded me, you know, I mean, at the time I was there, I don't know if this is still true, the, the median age of a Boston citizen was 27 years old. Right, I mean, it's because it, of all those schools. Yeah, because it catered to young people. Yeah. And particularly, you know, I was in Somerville, which was right outside of Cambridge. Harvard Square is like my favorite place in the world. Yeah. I mean, what's better than that? I had great record stores and the first Urban Outfitters was there <laughs> and great bookstores and oh my God, it was just, it, it felt like the, you know, the nexus of so many different cultural and social forces i just loved it so and, this so this whole personal experience this is is shaping what your college experience yeah. is going to end up being because yeah. you did go in straight down the middle with the science and the engineering yeah. and the computers and that right. was going to be your world yeah but i made a pact with myself that i was going to take one completely off the wall course per semester just like just so that i wasn't a total nerd because it was definitely a it was definitely a <laughs> danger um <laughs> So first semester, because you, I mean, you saw evidence of it all around. Hey, of course. <laughs> so uh, I would like flip open the college catalog and just pick something. And first semester, it was a course on Beethoven, which I really liked. I didn't know anything about classical music. Second semester, it was Italian cinema. And no joke, that literally changed my life. I mean, taking an Italian cinema class. There was this very charismatic professor who named John Dillon, who was just 
incredibly funny and irreverent and just loved film and just felt, Ugh. you know, that cinema was everything to her and Italian culture was. And so she, her enthusiasm for the film medium was infectious. And I didn't really understand the film was an art form in spite of the fact that at that time, 2001 and Annie Hall were my favorite movies. I didn't quite understand that there was art involved. Right. And so the idea of like taking apart a film and thinking about symbols and icons and like how, you know, just, I mean, mise-en-scene and montage and all that stuff yes. that you learn in a beginning film class. It was so incredibly exciting to me. And I just thought at that point, I got to do something. The like movie this. nerd in me wants to know it because I, I can almost guess what the movies might have been. Do you remember what you oh, saw? Oh, sure. Well, La Dolce Vita. Of course. Okay. I mean, the neorealist stuff like Open City and La Terra Trema and stuff, those were great. La Dolce Vita turned my head around. Yeah. And then the one that did it, and this is not a film that a lot of people are familiar with, but um, Antonioni's films, and specifically Eclipse, was like, I saw Eclipse and I was like, I can't believe it's a piece of modern art. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Every frame is like an immaculate composition. And I just was like, I have to do something like this. Um, still, Antonioni is like one of my gods. Like one of the greatest moments of my life is I got to see that film at LACMA with him in the audience. Oh. He was, oh. you know, he was probably in his 90s. He passed away a few years ago, but I got to see that film. I mean, so that just completely, that was a transformative moment. Mm -hmm. And that was what made me, I thought, I want to be a film director. And I had all these other little things that I was interested in. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I would take any class. I mean, I, you know, as I said, I had been taking some art history. I started taking some art history classes. Um, and then I did this really peculiar thing where I just decided one day, I was very interested in American art of the 60s. Uh, the sculpture and the painting and the music of the time. And I wandered into the dance department and I said to the first professor I saw, I would like to take an independent study in postmodern dance. That's the kind of crazy college student I was. Why? God knows why. I mean, the, you, you have no reason other no, than just it's enthusiasm. It's, but, just, the, yeah. but see, anybody else, that would be a, um, I'm going to do the thing that scares me. And then they have to like really just drum up this courage. But that was just your innate need to experience other things. Just try stuff. But, yeah. how, but how important do you think that was for you? Because there's so many creative people who once they focus on a thing, that is the only thing they focus on. We are in this city, yeah, in this yeah. town, in Hollywood, where people have been wanting to be famous since they were seven. Right. And this is and, – and then they come to this town and that's all – they're around nothing but that. Yeah. That's all they know. That's all they can talk about. That's all they, they you know, live and learn. How amazing that you had this intuition to, I just need to suck up as much information as possible. Well, listen, this is something in my makeup, which has extended not just through college, but into the career that followed, which is I get restless. I like to learn stuff. I have, a you know, 16 books out of the library, okay? I have a voracious curiosity about the world. And you're still doing that. And I'm still doing it. Yeah. And so, like, if I get to the point where I feel like I've... This is going to sound weird. Let me find a way to say this. It doesn't sound pretentious. If I feel like I've done it and done it really well, I'm like, next challenge. I want to do something else. Like, the move into directing for me after 25 years of, you know, having a very successful run, first in half-hour comedy and then in one-hour dramas, the move into directing was I wanted to do something that scared me a little bit, yeah. where I could, like, try something and take all that film knowledge that I'd piled up and put it to use somewhere. I... I'm not one of those people like what I mean, I admire people who do that, who get in a groove and stay in that groove and man, are they good at it? And they just get better and better. I'm just not that, you know, for whatever reason, I just have this innate restlessness that takes hold after a few years. And fortunately, I have a job 
which has this sort of inbuilt timetable where we make an episode a week. We make 22 of them a year. We make that for a couple of years, and then the show gets canceled, so yeah. you got to do something else. In my case, I tend to leave shows before they get canceled. Well, th- there is an aspect even to that. I mean, people who aspire to do it would give anything to be able to do the stuff you've done. But there, ev- once you get into it, there is an element that it can feel like factory work, that you're just you're filling buckets and you're, and you're trying to kind of get that 22 minutes out every week. And, and if you look at it that way, it can be we just have to crank these out. We have to meet these deadlines. We don't, we don't have any flexibility. Yeah. We it, have to, it, you play with these characters. It can be that way. I mean, I have had, in addition to having pretty good instincts about when to get in, I have pretty good instincts about when to get out. Yeah. And in most Before cases, it gets bad for you. Before it gets bad for me. That yeah. doesn't mean that if the show is done. I just get to the point where I feel like I have done everything I can do in this machine. You know, it's like I've taken the car around the track and we've gone up and down hills and we've gone to all these exotic places. But now give me a new car, you know, <laughs> or let's learn to fly an airplane. Right. And so I left Will and Grace right before the end. I left Desperate Housewives right before the end. I left Dream On right before the end. I, I Not that my departure had anything to do with the end of the show. Because it may it have. It may have. But, let's but, give you a little credit. But maybe I was the canary. Who was like, yeah. hmm, you know, <laughs> I think I smell gas. Yeah, this ain't going to last forever. Um, I was like, I, you know, I felt like I was, I had done everything I could do and had contributed everything I could contribute. So it was time to sort of set myself up for another challenge. I was fortunate in that my parents supported a college career that was built upon exploration. Well, let's get to that because okay. that's where we were before, which was um, the, the announcement that I'm moving from this yeah. to this. And then the dance was yeah, included. I, I mean, I, how so they did respond positively. Well, oh, okay. It was it, it was a <laughs> mixed bag. It was a mixed bag. I mean, I want to be really fair, and I don't want to get too like down and macabre about this. But uh, um, my mother was diagnosed with a brain tumor after my freshman year, and uh, and she died the summer after my sophomore year. So making this announcement to my father. Uh, at that time, I don't know how I expected that it would be anything but poorly received. I mean, there had been enough tumult and upheaval in his life. And for me to say all of a sudden, I am turning away from a potentially lucrative career towards something that is speculative and absurd, uh, how was that going to go over? Yeah. Um, at the same time, I feel like she was only 41 when she died. She was very young. And I was obviously very young. I was only 17. Um, it, if anything, that lit the afterburner for me in terms of wanting to, like, taste everything that life had to offer. Yeah. And losing a parent at that age, I just felt like, I, gotta, I don't want to waste my time, you know? She never, I felt like, I don't want to get too emotional talking about this. No, you're going to... As look- I said, she, there was a lot of things in life that she never got to do. She never, you know, because she had kids really fast and she was an amazing mom, she never got to be a writer. She never got to really explore her creativity to the extent that she wanted to. And so I felt like, don't waste your time. Don't sit in a place where you don't feel like you're having fun and you like the people yeah. and you're doing good work. Why bother? You know, you have a limited time on the planet. I don't know if anyone, everyone else responds to losing a parent this way, but for me, it just took this sort of nascent desire to explore and try and just turned it up to 11. Uh, and so the rest of my college career was about, I just want to try everything. And probably by the end of my junior year, I mean, I, again, I, I was very fortunate to go to, to a university with a lot of flexibility. I was able to do what they called a plan of study major, where you could, if you could get three professors to sign off on a curriculum, you could major in anything. So I decided to write a thesis on filmmaking and choreography and about what each medium has to say to the other. 
And so I was taking filmmaking courses at the School of the Museum of Fine Arts. I was taking film study courses at Tufts. I was taking dance classes at Tufts and choreography classes at Tufts. And I mashed them all together into this major, which to me was a sort of prelude to being a director. But that was all built on the back of all the exploration that I was doing, yeah. like all the things that excited me at the time. Yeah, um you're gonna. I'm gonna get emotional too because he, uh, you and I have a parallel path there. It's very interesting. We are. Uh, it was two years apart because you were younger. Yeah. Same exact time frame. Really. My mom was diagnosed with cancer. Oh. I was at film school here at USC. Oh no, kidding. And I, and I had reached a point. It was. It, this was uh, mid '80s. So, uh, film school at USC was yeah. like it was rock. It was rock and roll. I mean, yeah. it was like Lucas Spielberg. Sure, of course. Everybody knew that film schools existed. Uh, we were still working out of little bungalows. They hadn't built right. the glorious, you know, uh, temple to right. Lucas that there is now. Um, and they had accepted too many upperclassmen. So it was like I, I, my, my mom had just passed away. I was looking at basically taking the equivalent of cinema basket weaving. Right. Um, and I called my dad and I said, I'm just dropping out for a semester wow i'm gonna go back there's a buddy of mine who started putting on a radio station back in my hometown of texas wow and i said yes to it and i'm just gonna go do that and um and i needed that i mean it turned into a career in a a weird i mean it it literally kind of started what became the the vocation that i had no intention of doing (laughs) um but it, it i I, I guess I want to explore it a little bit with sure. you, Jeff, because I, I think about that a lot right now. Because I think I see my my son at twenty three, and he's got two parents who are who are together, right. who've been married for twenty eight years. It's a very different environment than I grew up with. Yeah. Divorced parents. Uh, one of them passed away in her forties. Right. I was much closer to my mom. Yeah. Um, she was a major impact on me. She w- she and my dad both, but she was the one who was like, "Yes, of course, we'll get you into USC. I don't care. We'll figure right. out a way to get you there." See, I'm going to get all... I understand. Um, and I had to be a grown-up oh, really yeah. fast. I mean, I wonder, do you think about that, how how different you might be had you not had to be that independent? Was that part of the exploration? Was it, Sure. Was I, mean, it, I mean, it wasn't like you... Because you're not saying all, suddenly all the, all the restrictions are off of me. It was... It was the. It was. Oh, I need to do something that matters to me because. Yeah. I, I mean, it was. It just, as I said, it validated a, a set of choices that I was already in the process of making, which is that this is a time to figure out who you are. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, identity. I'm fascinated with with issues of identity, both you know personally and professionally. I tend to write about them a lot. Yeah. Because that whole idea of trying to figure out who you are and what you're supposed to be and where you fit into the world and what kind of what kind of person you are, what kind of husband you might be, what kind of parent you might be. I think all these things are completely fascinating. And when I think about that time, it's all, it was all tied into like, well, who am I exactly? Yeah. You know, and I felt that this was a good time to fucking figure it out. Well, I, and I think most people, I mean, especially college, it seems to be the most formative time for that. Yeah. Um, for identifying, well, who is it I, I am really? I was a, a certain thing in high school. Right. Because that college thing, especially if you move to a different city and you're not around your family all the time, it is it is a chance to hit reboot. It is yeah, like, that's right. I, can, I mean, I went to USC, and all of a sudden, I was Lawrence growing yeah. up. When I went to USC, all of a sudden, people just took that, and they started calling me Larry. And Great. I'm like, okay, I'm Larry now. Yeah. And I've been Larry for the rest of my life. And it was this, in this weird way, it was, oh, I, I can be that guy. And it wasn't me trying to kind of put on a facade. It was it was more like, 
maybe I'm just going to be like who I'm supposed to be. I really identify with that because I remember that, you know, one of the things I felt that as as a teenager, and maybe this was because of the circumstances I found myself in as this sort of outsider, I was kind of cynical. I felt that, it, you know, particularly as a high school sophomore, junior and senior, part of the, what made me funny was how cynical I was. And I found that a lot of the writers that I was drawn to had the same sort of jaundiced view of yeah, the world. Yeah. And I think that I decided that that was a garment I needed to cast off as I moved to college, that that was a losing gambit in a way that like, you know, cynicism and I not to invoke the title of your podcast, but snarkiness. Ultimately, there are limits to how how much that can enable you to engage with the world in a way that's meaningful and nourishing. And so I kind of hit reboot in a lot of ways. And when I went off to school, it was like, I want to enjoy and I want to find joy and I want to believe in things and I want to find my tribe, yeah, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I would say definitely, like I said, within a year of that, you know, my mom died and it was like, cynicism does nothing for me at this point. You know, like I, that's interesting because uh, I, you know what I mean? Yeah, because I I'm not cynical either. I, I'm I am frustratingly glass half, oh, half full guy. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, people hate me for that, but they'll say, you know, oh, look at this terrible disaster. I, go, I know, but the new growth from the new trees will bring them. You know, no, I mean, like, that's the thing. I find I it all the time. I cannot help uh, but be. An optimist, and I always believe things are going to work out. I was just talking with a friend of mine about this this morning because I have a lot of things that I'm working on, a lot of projects I'm developing. And the hardest thing for me is that I know some of these aren't going to come to pass, but I believe all of them will. (laughs) I sincerely believe. And I can see the future that will unfold for me should any of these things come to pass. They certainly deserve to come to pass. Because the truth is, like, if you operate (laughs) in this sort of defensive crouch where you're waiting for somebody to hit you, well, then where is the joy? Because chances are things aren't going to work out. So then you've spent the prelude cringing, right. and then you got smacked. Where There was no fun to be had. Well, that's that concept <laughs> that, you know, people who are big into karma or vibe or whatever, yeah. or, you know, putting out that, you know, you you, you get back what you put out. Yeah. And, and, and I don't necessarily buy into that, but I do think there's a lot to be said for you are – projecting whatever it is you're thinking and feeling and people are people probably don't give themselves enough credit for being as intuitive as they really are so so if you're sitting here and you're you've got four projects going and you know in your heart none of these are going to happen i'm going to get a very different sense of who you are even if without you saying that definitely true but i but yeah i mean and and i think part of that is why and I, I'm sorry to keep comparing okay. myself no, no, to no, you, no, no, no. but I, I'm finding kind of this common yeah. ground. Uh, they talk about this law of attraction. I know people yeah. who really love that. What does that I, mean? I, well, I, I think I recognize this because I've been around and I've been in enough work situations now. For some reason, I think people pick up on that, whether it's lack of cynicism or positive attitude or just confident, just plain confidence yeah. in what it is. People tend to want gravitate to me. And I think to you, people are are instantly thinking, oh, I can work with this guy. And they don't know why. I'll give you a prime example. This has nothing to do with work. I have been on jury duty twice. Yeah. And I, uh, uh, the second time, it actually went to a trial. Right. And so they 
decided on the jury. We all went, oh, fuck. And <laughs> they sent us back to the jury room. Right. And the judge gave the instructions before we begin. You need to, uh, uh, you know, judge yeah. amongst yourselves who's going to be the foreman. We sit down and a gr- none of these people that I have even had a conversation with, this um, Latina, looks up, points at me and goes, I think he should <laughs> be the foreman. And the rest of the room went, yep. Wow. And, like, and I was like. That's funny. I kind of knew that was coming. That's I just, funny, because it's, it's your strange. affect, right? It's what I get, you're putting out there. I don't know. And I, but How I said funny. nothing. I did nothing. Uh, but I've just experienced that. And, uh, and part of it is one of the things that I've had to modulate over the years, and maybe you've experienced this too, is that because of that, people immediately just want your help and your assistance. Right. And if you're anything like me as a people pleaser, I have said oh, yeah. yes to almost all of them and spent more time helping other people than helping myself. Definitely. And that's a hard thing to turn yeah. off. But because yeah. I appreciate that. I like no, that they, the they want. It's nice, you know, when people are drawn to you and yeah. you get that kind of validation for being the person you are, which, as I said, was in short supply earlier in my life. Right. Me too. Um, it's a good feeling, you know. And it's something I thought about a lot as I made the transition from being a writer showrunner to being a director, because when I when I ultimately decided to direct, I took all of my actor friends and all of my <laughs> director friends to lunch, and I said, "Give me some do's and don'ts um, <laughs> of what they'd experienced." Yeah, yeah, what they'd experienced. Like, and and to a man, to a woman, the the thing that came across was you must project buoyancy, confidence, che- good cheer. And infinite patience. Now, as I said, I have a glass head, okay? And as sunny a personality as I have, (laughs) if I feel thwarted or anxious or impatient or scared, everybody knows it. So I felt like as I made that move into directing, job one was you have to banish that. Because if you seem – I'll never forget this. Uh, This guy, uh, uh, Tom Irvine, who was the uh, first AD on Desperate Housewives, we were in the van – on the way to the location where I was going to do my first shot as a director. And he said, uh, I want to tell you a joke. How many first-time directors does it take to screw in a light bulb? And I said, what? He said, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> he said, don't be that guy. Don't do that. Don't be that guy. Yeah. He said, make a choice. Just make a choice. You can always change your mind. You yeah. can always say, hey, you know what? Now that I see it, I don't like it. Yeah. But make a choice. Yeah. And be definitive. And be, you know, and I would that yeah, never they'll smell me. fear the yeah, moment you walk on. That's what it is. So interesting. So and interesting. So I found, particularly my first couple of weeks working as a director, I would come home and just collapse from exhaustion because maintaining that buoyancy for 12 hours was an enormous amount of work. <laughs> Even though, as I said, I think I'm an upbeat guy, but never showing fear, never showing anxiety or impatience. Always keeping a smile on your face, always being patient. Hey, you want another take? Fine. Hey, no problem. We got plenty of time. There was a film crew that followed me around when I did uh, this web series, Husbands. There was this guy, Scott, who was making sort of a behind-the-scenes feature about this web series I directed. And he said, do you know what word you say more than anything else? And I said, "Uh uh-oh. He said, fine. (laughs) He said, you say it all the time. (laughs) Yeah, I'm fine. No, 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 that's fine. No, it's fine. What, What you did, fine. Because that's me maintaining an acceptable <laughs> level of buoyancy. But it's the job. I mean, yeah. look, as I said, there are directors who terrorize people sure. into giving a performance. Sure. I could not do that. I'm yeah. not, I don't have the confidence or the toxicity to pull that off. I'm a person who says, I want to make you happy. I want you to feel safe. I want you to feel free to experiment. I mean, I think if I brought anything to mom, I had never directed multicamera before I did mom. Oh, really? But uh, I had done some single care. I had done several Desperate Housewives and a couple. I did one of Bob Cushell's shows, Way to Go. I did an episode of that show. 
and this web series. I'd never done multicam, and so I felt very much like a. And obviously, I produced hundreds of episodes right. of multicam. You were later. around it a lot. I knew what it looked like. By osmosis, but, you must have gotten the process. Yes, down. but what I brought to that set as a director was just up. I was fun. I was going to give you a good time. I was going to take care of you. I was going to be daddy to everybody. Yeah. Um, and if I persisted on that show, and I've done 11 of them now, it's really because of that. I'm not the most technically adept. I do know my way around at Punchline, so I think I know how to help make things funny. But more than anything else, I make it, I hope, I make it possible to, for everyone to feel cared for and safe so that they can try anything. And there's no, there's no, it's a no failure zone. Well, especially on a show that's that's dealing with dark topics. Absolutely. So that, that you can bring them back to those moments of buoyancy or whatever, yeah. because that can, even on a comedy, that can, that can be a little, that the can show, be a well, Yeah, the show can be very raw. Yeah. I mean, there was, there have been scenes on this show that feel, I worked on Parenthood for a year, um, in between two sojourns on Desperate Housewives and Parenthood, that was pure drama. Yeah. There are Lots moments, of crying in Parenthood. A lot of crying. Yeah. Well, there are moments on Mom that are not unlike a scene you do on Parenthood. They're just as open and honest and forthright and raw as anything you do, and yet, 300 people are watching, waiting to laugh. Mm -hmm. And so as a performer, you take a big risk slowing down and being emotional and maybe having tears and maybe that's a risk. That's as, that's more vulnerable than not getting a laugh. That In the 70s, that used to be a very special episode yeah. of Different Strokes but I, yeah, once exactly. in a while. Yeah. And this but, is I mean, mom, mom is every week. Yeah. And it doesn't treat these emotions with any specialness. You know, as you said, it treats it kind of like it's about getting along in life. Yeah. I mean – you know, I always say, like, everyone, if you're not in recovery yourself, you know somebody who is. But the truth is that the rules of recovery are something that everyone deals with in daily life. You know, looking for moments of grace, looking for wholeness, looking to be honest with people, looking to admit truths about yourself. This is something mom deals with all the time. It's, and, that, and the rawness is, I think, what makes the show so special. And it doesn't give away the jokes. <laughs> um, let's, let's, let's go through a little bit of once you got out of college. Sure. Because uh, I— I'm curious about how you got from Atlanta to Boston to Hollywood yeah. um, and what the first big break was. I mean, if you got through college with the what was the, what was the major by the time you finished <laughs> film and dance film and dance. So That's what right. do you what do you where do you take that? Well, what, what was your aspiration at that point? It's film I director. to be a director. Yeah, yeah, I want to be a film director. Now, this was 1985. There was no YouTube. There was no inexpensive HD camera in your pocket. You know, if you wanted to make a film, film stock, cameras, Nagra, editing suite. Do they have a, a film department at Tufts? Well, I, I took – Tufts had a cross-registration program with the School of the Museum of Fine Arts. Oh. And so I took filmmaking classes at the museum school. They had an editing bay, and they had cameras you could take out. So you got, the, you got to have it in your I hands. I did, but unlike what you had at USC – I had an art school education. No one, people were making non-narrative films. There was one film this guy named Joe made where he took the Bolex and he went over to the, uh, the new wing of the museum, the IMP wing, which had just opened, right. the Museum of Fine Arts. He went into the bathroom with a, a gallon of distilled water. He filmed all this, drank the gallon, peed the gallon back into the container, sent it through again. <laughs> This film was, I think, three hours long, and it was just him drinking and re-drinking his urine. That was the kind of film that was yeah. being made at the museum school. So, by the way, <laughs> even at USC, because I, I, I've talked about this before, the uh, um, I don't know if you ever encountered Chris Black. Uh, Chris Black. Oh yeah, yeah, he was there before I left. Okay. He was part of the previous administration, uh, Chris, but I met him. Chris nice guy. was my 
sophomore year film partner at oh, USC. Oh, no kidding. Great. And um, I believe it's the hubris of youth or whatever yeah. it is. But even at USC, big time Hollywood, let's go be the next George Lucas Film School. Right. It was uh, arty. Uh, mostly it was uh, intense, heavy dramas that 18 and 19 year olds had no. Right. No business. Uh, no making. business making. <laughs> the incest drama. Sure. The, the standard annual rape drama. There was right. always of one course. of those. Yep. Uh, heavy death. We were always happy when there was nudity because <laughs> we were. Hor- yeah. We were horny nerds yes, that were you not were all getting young any. And hot. So Chris and I are making because we had been making Super Eight films. You know, and he grew up in Toledo. I grew up in yeah. Odessa. We were shooting Super 8 movie. We knew how to construct a film. We were making straight-ahead narrative. You know, we had 18 yeah. minutes of footage to work with. Right. So we shot what we needed to shoot. We told the story in that 18 minutes. Uh, we did a comedy about Santa Claus getting shot accidentally in the middle of the night. <laughs> uh, and we were accused of not taking ourselves seriously oh, yeah. because we did a funny, yeah. tight, well-constructed story. I'll never forget that. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it was limited to just the arty kids. It was, uh, it we was were the, maybe way that out, age. Yeah, but we were way out on the fringes. I mean, I mean I a three-hour drinking your own urine yeah. movie. But that's, but that's like that's, I said, that's 16, out there. 16 millimeter filmmaking at the museum school, people were not making narrative. Right. And so I had no idea. How do you cover a scene? Like, how, what's the coverage? Just the like, basics, I the fundamentals. Yeah, yeah. So, but I can't, and, and needless to say, I didn't take an English class the whole time I was at Tufts. I got a five on the AP, so I didn't have to take any English classes, and I didn't. I didn't take any playwriting classes. The theater crowd, I actually went with a, to school with a very fast crowd. Hank Azaria was in my graduating class. Oliver Platt was in my graduating class. I had nothing to do with them. <laughs> nothing to do with the theater department. Never took a screenwriting class. So here I am. So you didn't know how to write. You didn't know, the, didn't know how to direct. You didn't know how to <laughs> basic fundamentals of filmmaking. That's right. How the hell? Yeah, I know. Well, I, you know, I'm drumming you out of the business. Well, here's the man. thing: the the naivete is a wonderful thing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the fact that I was too stupid to understand the size of the hurdles in my way made it possible for me, at the age of 20, to get in my car, or not even my car, to get in a driveaway car. You remember those? <laughs> yes. Or, to get in a driveaway car and drive from Atlanta to to uh, Los Angeles in three solid days, gobbling caffeine pills the whole way. Uh, didn't know a soul. Didn't know anybody. Wow. Just came out here with... It was I, literally, I'm going to Hollywood. Yeah. I'm going to figure out how I'm to be a director. how to do it. Yeah. Wow. I don't know what I thought I was going to do. But I was foolish enough and <laughs> brash enough because I thought, well, college was all about trying stuff. I'm just going to keep trying stuff. So this was... An, you're just <laughs> continuing the adventure. Um, When I got out here, I thought... I went to... You know, I... I Finding your sea legs in Los Angeles is incredibly hard. So even just figuring out where to live. I lived in what is now Koreatown. When I lived in Koreatown, my landlady got beat up by drug dealers. It was like they found the uh, Hillside Strangler's car behind the supermarket <laughs> right. across from my building. That's so right. It, like, it was hardcore. I didn't know where you were supposed to live. So I lived in Koreatown in this horrible roach-infested apartment with a Murphy bed and started – remember, no computers in these days. Well, no laptop computers started typing a screenplay, just started working on a screenplay. And then I lured a college friend of mine, Jeff Strauss, out about six months later. And he lived in another apartment in the cockroach-infested building. And we started writing screenplays, just writing them, just because we could. And it seemed like the thing you're supposed to do while you're waiting for your kick-ass directing career to begin. What were you doing to stay alive? Well, this is the great part, Larry. See, 
I had all that computer knowledge kicking around. Yes. And in 1985, the ability to sit down at a keyboard and not be scared of a word processor was a skill. <laughs> and so I signed up with nine different temp agencies as a word processor. And I would bullshit my way through the interview. They'd say, do you know WordStar? I'm like, of course I know WordStar. Never seen WordStar in my life. But you figured but it out. I was not scared of computers. Right. And I knew I could sit down at any computer in five minutes, figure out, you know, Control-Alt-Z is how you bold something. I mean, because <laughs> that's all it was. So I was able to, God love my computer science background, because I was able to sit down at a computer and transcribe loss reports for an insurance agency. I did a lot of that. Um, I didn't have to wait tables, you know, I didn't because God knows I had no people skills in that regard. <laughs> I didn't even have to answer phones at the office. I would they would give me I remember this one. I, I loved these people. I worked at this place called Graham Miller, which was an insurance adjuster, and they would give me the little cassettes that the adjusters brought back from the field from their dictaphone. And my job was just to sit in the back of the computer and transcribe them. Fourteen dollars an hour which in 1985 was like making $36 an hour today. That's a lot of money. So I was able to support myself and live in my cockroach-infested apartment and work on my shitty screenplays and not starve. What was, what was, give me a sample of the kind of screenplay. You... Oh, well, the first one that Jeff and I wrote together uh, was about a, uh, an unorthodox temporary employment agency because I was temping a lot. And it write like what fun. you know. Okay. Yeah, so it was sure. about a temporary employment agency for the weird – that gets caught up in an international microchip theft. It was terrible. It was terrible. But I remember, this is so funny, I remember Jeff and I were halfway through writing this thing, and we went to go see Ghostbusters, and we're like, ours is so much better. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. It was so foolish. Okay, but here's the thing. Okay, so I met a girl. I dated this girl, Tracy. Tracy, weirdly, I guess because she was temping as much as I had, eventually got hired by a temp agency. To, like, place people in jobs. She got Jeff Strauss, my writing partner, a job working in the financial control department at ABC. There was this big shakeup at ABC, and all of a sudden, Jeff was moved upstairs to being the assistant to the head of comedy development for the network. And all of these great shows were being made then, and all of these great scripts were coming across his desk for, like, Roseanne, Moonlighting, Wonder Years, Perfect Strangers, all these really good shows, 30-something and so we all of a sudden had this epiphany that TV scripts were a lot shorter. And maybe if we applied ourselves to writing TV scripts rather than movie scripts, it might be easier for us to get a toehold. And so that's what we did. And also Jeff was developing these phone relationships with agents. And so when we had material that we thought was good enough to show somebody, we picked the agent that had the best phone relationship with Jeff and said, will you read our material? And he did. And he took us on. That's how we got an agent. Wow. And then at the time, and I'm going to shorthand this, but at the time – in the late 80s, you could get a freelance episode of an existing show. This is less true now. But we did a freelance episode of The Charmings, and then Mr. Belvedere, and then Charles in Charge. Uh, and during this, we kept writing fresh material, and we eventually wrote a script that got us the meeting at Dream On, um, which was this brand-new show for a brand-new network, you know, that was HBO had just started making original programming. Right. It's so funny now yeah. to look at uh, how much original programming is coming from so many sources. It's amazing. And isn't it? you talk about Dream On, you know, comedy nerds like me and uh, TV obsessives like yeah. me know Dream On. Yeah, but and, not a lot and that's what do. Dream On was about, was yeah. being, TV, being obsessive. TV obsessive. But the team that created that, Marta Kaufman and David Crane, were New York playwrights. And it was really, I think, their first show that they got on. And of course, 
after, you know, Dream On was the greatest first experience a writer could ever have because they were amazing. I learned everything from those two. We were working at HBO, and HBO was just push it, be edgy, try stuff. Yeah. You know, once again. Like put boobs want, in it. Yeah, put boobs in it. Yeah. Be adult. Do anything you could not do on a network, which right. for a young writer is the best lesson in the world, right? So I was on that show for five years, ended up running that show with Jeff. That's where I met Bob Cushell. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, when Marta and David uh, went over to Warner Brothers to develop programming for them, they asked us to help out on their pilots. And one of the first pilots they did there was what at the time was called Six of One and then was called uh, – what else was it called? Friends Like These, Friends Like Us. <laughs> And we helped out on the pilot of Friends, and then they hired us for that show. Wow. You were with that show how long? Just one year. Because here's the funny part. This is, the funny part is that because we had been running Dream On, Universal TV, which produced Dream On, made a little tiny deal with us to sort of keep us as in-house talent. And after we worked on the pilot of Friends, Marta and David said, God, is there any way you could get out of that deal to help us launch Friends? And so Universal made a deal where they loaned us to Friends for one year only with the proviso that during that year we write them a pilot. And during the time we were there, we wrote a pilot over Christmas break called Partners, which was basically about my relationship with my writing partner. It was about two guys who are best friends and partners in an architectural firm and how their relationship changes when one of them gets engaged. I really like that show. Oh, thanks, Larry. John God, Cryer, so, Tate John, Donovan. And Maria Patillo. Yeah. yeah. I really oh like that show. Thank, I you, thought thank that, you for knowing that I thought show. that was going to be the John Cryer success. And it, it, turned it could out have not, been. We were on the wrong network. Honestly, it was Fox. Right? It was Fox yeah. And they did not, they still don't know how to launch a multi-camera <laughs> half hour. Think about it. It was a really well done. Thanks. Show. It was. I mean, it was great an amazing chemistry, experience. great cast, really funny writing. Yeah. Jimmy I, Burroughs directed the pilot. Yep. He did a bunch of the episodes. It was great. So I we went it. from being on Friends, the rocket ship of all time, to running our own show. Uh, and so that's the only reason I didn't stay with Friends because I would have stayed there until they threw me out of the building. Um, <laughs> it was an amazing experience. But again, like I said, on, working on the pilot of Friends, I was like, this will be fun. My friends and I might watch this show. I didn't think it was going to be a billion-dollar pop culture juggernaut. I just thought this will be the show my friends and I watch. Um, but then, yeah, then we went to doing our own show, and thank you for remembering that show. Oh, because sure. it was an amazing experience. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's always frustrating when, you know, really good people get, put a really good show on the air, and just for some reason it just never kind of takes hold. It was hold. the wrong and, network. Uh, and they, everybody they, I've and... talked to is from Ken yeah. Levine on up oh, yeah. to you. Um, it, 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 and that's... That's and that's one of those things you don't get to ever revive that. It's like, you know, all the all the elements came into play. However, or do you? <laughs> well, no, here's the, I made a joke about this on Twitter the other day because I saw that they're, you know, redoing Full House, they're redoing Coach, they're redoing right. X-Files. I was like, you know, now that two and a half men is done, the entire cast of partners is available. <laughs> and to be honest, this is absurd, Larry, but it would be interesting to see where that triangle was. 17 years later. interesting like what how what what if what's happened to those three people it'd and, be interesting it was an interesting relationship and i just happened to i'm, I'm going back to uh other sources of yeah. network tv um i'm watching bloodline on net on netflix right now um and saw tate donovan's name oh he, well, the director he direct, yeah he's he's doing a lot of directing good show. and of course he was in argo he was terrific in yep. that yeah yeah i think tate is one of those guys i completely see him as a director he's such a yeah. Good soul and such a nice guy and so smart. So I'm glad that's working out for him. So post friends and post partners, give us the give us the rundown. Uh, the uh, IMDb okay. of the, Jeff the IMDb Greenstein's was, life. Well, after partners got canceled, which was did you just, ever have to work with the monkey? 
Oh, the monkey. Yeah, we did work with the monkey. Yeah. I mean, I wrote, I think, a monkey episode. I'm trying to think. I mean, that was Adam Chase and Ira Ungerleiter. They pitched this. They came in with this hilarious pitch where they said, Ross gets a monkey because he wants to seem more saucy and Mediterranean. <laughs> And uh, well, that alone, yeah. I mean, yeah, you can I mean, pick right on the there. monkey yeah. episodes all you want, but that pitch right there is the, the thing. Perfect. Was the monkey was initially a surrogate girlfriend for Ross, right? And that was really, really funny. But then we started doing monkey tricks, and it wasn't funny yeah. anymore. So we yeah. had to get rid of Marcel. Um, but writing the monkey up, ep- the getting rid of the monkey episode was really funny because it was like they were trying to get the monkey into a, a zoo, right. and it was exactly like trying to get the monkey into getting your son into college. <laughs> so they were saying, you know, the univer- you know, the zoo in Hawaii wants it, but that's a total party zoo, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So we did have fun with it. And Jennifer Anderson is gorgeous and delightful. Yeah. And she is the loveliest person. I had the experience. Remember, I only worked with her really for like a year, uh, maybe a year and a half. Um, and I loved all of them. They were all lovely. Okay. But I was at a premiere years later of this movie that Deborah Messing was in called Along Came Polly that Jennifer was also in. And I went to the premiere because Deborah invited me. And... I am there just like, you know, with a buffet table or something. And I feel this tap on my shoulder. And Jennifer just gives me this huge hug. How are you? How's Lisa? How's Henry? Like, like that's really unusual. That like, whatever that was, eight or eight years later or something, like she'd still know my wife's name and my son's name. And like, I don't think that's a, lovely. Look, you know, look, here's the thing. You happen to catch those guys, with the exception of Courtney Cox, who was the only thing close to a known name that's right. on Nobody that knew first season. That. That's they right. were these young fresh-faced. They had all been knocking around doing pilots. Yeah. They were doing all the things that young actors do. And, yeah. and you you were probably one of those lovely figures around that time because of who you are, that they were looking to anybody who was, you know, giving them the, the right direction and, and being the father or the big brother or whatever it was. So that, I, I think that that's probably a pretty memorable time for I, them. I um, that, Especially not, that first year. Yeah. I mean, that's that flatters me. Uh, but I, I would say this flatters Jennifer because, like, she's a really kind person. I like her very much, and I just um, – God, I would work with her again in a heartbeat. I just saw her in um, Wanderlust, you know, the uh, David Wayne movie. She's I like so that movie a lot. There. She is just so gifted, and I just love them all. It was – that was the total – trip getting to work on that yeah, show and they yeah. were all great and so uh, i love you all, you all. <laughs> but right. anyway okay so the filmography went like that so we did partners partners was cruelly canceled um we the next year we did a pilot for nbc which did not go and then um and then came a show which is a, a little bit of a, a blot on my resume because it didn't come out right which was this show that strauss and i created called getting personal um with um uh, Dwayne Martin and John Cryer and Vivica Fox. And it was a very, very nice group of people and one of the best staffs I've ever assembled. But the show had bad DNA. It was not a good idea for a TV show. Mm. And to be honest, there was this incipient tension in my relationship with my writing partner, and that kind of blasted into the open. And so it just was a miserable year. Well, you had to have at least one of those in the mix, right? I yeah, mean... but the truth, listen, yeah, I had to have one bad experience. It just, it was, it was sad because it, it hurt our relationship for a while. Ah. You know, and he was like my best friend and my best man at my wedding. And, so it was it was rough, and so when we split up, he actually dumped me. When we split up, and you're it still was, hurting, it was it was. And I you know I had barbecue with him two days. Ago. Oh, okay, We're great friends again. <laughs> All right, but it was rough, and I had a new baby, and like it was it was rough. That's um, interesting because um, because of the way this business works, you are pretty much always around friends i mean you, you yeah. form friendships in this business yeah. because you're around people all the time you are people of like mind you usually i mean you obviously gravitate to places places where you like to work with people 
or you bring your friends to the party. Definitely. And the, but things, you know, when things go sour, then it's you're rough. in that room or and, you're in that place. And listen, if Partners was the show that was about how you know, Jeff's and my relationship was like a marriage. Well, this was our divorce. Yeah. You know, we had to, there was a surreal scene at our, at our lawyer's office where we had to divide up the ideas, <sighs> like the ideas that we had come up with together as if they were our children. Like you can have the teacher show. I'll have the show about the car factory. And it's like, That's it weird. was absurd. And, you know, and, and it was, there were a lot of hard feelings for a while, but we got through it. Um, but I was so scared, you know, because, Listen, in spite of the successes that I'd had, that was a high-profile flame-out. And uh, actually, the show went forward without me. I was no great loss. The show did another season without me. But I felt completely devastated, and I didn't know what to do with myself. And I, like I said, I was scared out of my mind. And uh, Jimmy Burroughs called me, and I had worked with him, obviously, on Friends and on Partners. And he said, there's this pilot called Will and & Grace, and the guys who created it really need some help. And so would you meet with these guys about maybe coming and joining the staff of this show? And I watched the pilot of Willing, and they had bared, they had made maybe two episodes. The show had not aired, but I met with David Cohen and Max Muchnick, who created the show, and I just made this love connection with these guys. Just instantly, like I said, good antenna, right? I was like, I can have fun with these guys. Yeah. We could make something pretty special together. And they had a vision for a world that this show took place in, and a comedic vernacular that this show had. And I brought my own stuff to it. But I also knew how to make the trains run on time. I had run shows before, so I knew kind of how scripts move the, into the pipeline and then become television episodes. And so we were a tremendous team, and we ran that show together for four years. And uh, that changed my life. I mean, I went from being, you know, Jeff Strauss's former writing partner to, like, one of the architects of another NBC must-see comedy hit. Right, yeah. Won an Emmy 18 months later. Uh, so that was phenomenal. And... Oh, my God. Talk about, like, an, again, an amazing cast, four rock stars, you know, all four of those, you know, Deborah, you know, Sean, Megan, and Eric. I mean, you could not ask for a better cast. I'm not sure that that show gets as much credit, uh, like, right now, in hindsight, as it should for being beautifully executed yeah. and, and having all those elements. I'm not well, really sure why it's not, like, I don't, I don't, I don't see it in syndication it, all the time. It, I, I'm sure it's out there. It may feel that it was of its time. I mean, yeah. you know, the thing we – I don't know that I'll ever have the experience. The experience I had on Will & Grace was great people. I made a lovely living. It was right near my house. Visibility. It was a hit. And we moved the culture. Yeah. You know? I mean, there, there, there is an element of it that I guess my point is not only just as a good TV show, but it was kind of groundbreaking yeah. in this depiction, certainly of gay characters in a way that had not been done before. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. And we, you know, it's funny because that's something that I said in my very first meeting with David and Max is I said, Will has got to fall in love with somebody. You've got to give him a relationship because that's because he's gorgeous and rich. <laughs> like there's nothing wrong with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like unless he yearns for love, what's wrong with him? Um, and that's something we were able to bring along in the series. I mean, he he dated and he ultimately got like a real Love of his life, played by Bobby Cannavale, this amazing actor. That oh God, he was so great! And uh, we wish we showed you know like guys kiss on TV and get you know get into a committed relationship. And, and the like, show stayed as hugely popular yeah, across the country as I yeah. Mean, people took the ride with us, which yeah. is great. And Joe Biden says that we opened the door for gay marriage. I'm cool <laughs> with that. So that was amazing, and I stayed with that show for seven years. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. I ran it after Max. I ran it with them. Then after they left, I ran it for another couple of years, and then consulted, and then left. And then um, I did Jake in Progress, 
right? With uh, both Bob and with Austin Winsberg, who I know you've also spoken to. And that was a wonderful experience. But unfortunately, the network didn't know what the hell to do with the show. And it never really aired, uh, which was, well, I did season two. Austin did season one. I came one to help on season two. Season two never aired. It was weird. Um, and I was still sort of reeling from that experience when Mark Cherry, who I sort of knew from the comedy writing community, called me and said, do you want to come help run Desperate Housewives? And so I was like, what? Uh, now, this is an established uh, – this is yeah. a different situation different for situation. you. Because you're coming onto something, and if and if I get the chronology right, you're coming on to a season after it was roundly – Yeah, it had know, a rough year. Yeah, it, it had was, a rough year. Season one was this just, you know, just incredible – Yeah. Light around. I, I, I don't want to use the word zeitgeist because just, I promised yeah. I wouldn't. But it, it just it, it an ama- hit I mean, something. Mark wrote an amazing show and he did an amazing job of executing it. And so they had this you know incredible first year, and then the second year was considered to be a bit, be a bit of a creative struggle. But also there was all this struggle behind the scenes because Mark was still trying to figure out how to work with his writing staff. And so at the end of season two, he kind of cleaned house. And that I met Chris Black in passing, right. but unfortunately he was part of the house cleaning. Well, and Chris, um, I mean, I, I didn't want to call him out, but I, I think he would be the first to admit that was not a great fit for him. Yeah, uh, he and he he's not going to sit here and badmouth Mark, but uh, you were talking about because it's interesting when you began this whole podcast with the right environment, and yeah. you included Desperate Housewives in that. I'm sure that Chris would say. That was not an environment where he felt like well, he belonged. Uh, to be fair to everybody who ever worked on the show, Mark had a specific set of requirements that he needed in order to stay astride the entire writing and production process. And he didn't figure that out until season three. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of good writers came and went um, because Mark was still trying to figure out the mechanics. And I think one of the things, again, I know how to make the trains run on time. One of the things I helped Mark do was institute a process that enabled him to sort of ride shotgun on every script and every shot and every episode and at the same time, uh, you know, and imbue his voice into every episode and at the same time to nourish writers and enable them to make a creative contribution. And that was something that really I felt from what I've heard season one and season two were a little more dysfunctional in that way. But the years that I was there, three, four and five. And then I went away and came back. But three, four, and five, we instituted a process that really worked. And so I think it was a happier place. Um, To Mark's credit, he went out and he got some very high-powered writers to help him refashion the show. So it wasn't building the machine. It was search and salvage. We had Mm -hmm. to rebuild the machine. And season three, I'm really proud of what we did in those seasons. Like, we started over in a lot of ways. We went back to who are these characters? What do they want? What are the relationships? Where are we going? And it was thrilling for me because it was really my first experience working on an hour. Yeah. I had done single camera before, but to plot a multi-threaded soap operatic hour with a mystery element and so forth, it was just brand new to me. And plus to come into a show that's already established, you you had to come at it from a very different angle than you had ever done before at the very beginning of something. Yeah, And, uh, and that was exciting. And Mark was a great collaborator. And so I had an incredible ride. But then... As always happens with me, I did seasons three, four, and five, and I got restless. Yeah. And I had the opportunity to go work on Parenthood to help launch that show. And so I went to Mark and I said, you know, no hard feelings, but I think I need a change of venue. And uh, he was really great about it. And he said, you know, there'll always be a place for you here and go and have fun. And, you know, thank you for everything you've done. And it was all very cordial. And then I went and did Parenthood. And I, to be honest, I had a rough year. It was hard for me. It was a hard show for me. Why was it hard? Um, 
Well, I, it's it's certainly different. I mean, Desperate Housewives, despite it being an hour and I guess you having its dramatic elements, it's still it's still comedic. It's still comedic. I have a thing that I do as a writer, which is that, and it took me a while to figure this out. While and I figured it out while I was on Dream On, I characters expressing emotion. I had a lot of trouble when Marta and David would pitch scenes or beats or lines when character ta- when characters talked directly about their feelings because outside of podcasts. People rarely do that unless they are really under pressure. Or in therapy. Or in therapy. Unless they're drunk, in therapy, angry, (laughs) betrayed, broken, desperate in some way. And so I would always try and – the characters that I enjoyed writing the most were people who were glib and facile and bantering and dancing. And then something would happen to cut the legs out from under them. They have to stop dancing. And that's when they talk about their feelings. And maybe that's because that's who I am. Okay, but one way or another, that was my axe. Parenthood is not that. Parenthood is a show, and Jason Kadams does this as beautifully as any writer in TV, where people talk honestly in a raw fashion about their feelings. All the time. All the time. Mm -hmm. And in a way that does not feel like melodrama and doesn't make me go, you know. And I had trouble doing that. I felt like my superpowers had been taken away because I couldn't write glib banter and then your legs are cut out from everything. Yeah, yeah. I had to try and write in Jason's mode. And I think ultimately by the end of my year there, I found a way to do it. But it was a struggle. And I remember saying to Jason around the three-quarters point, I said, I don't know if I'm going to come back next year. And he was like, come back, do more, write more episodes. I mean, he gave me a second script assignment. I was like, dude, you don't want to do that. <laughs> you don't want to do that. But he really, he, I mean, we had such enormous personal affection for each other because I really love the guy. He was great to me and he was really patient with but I was ultimately not a great fit for that show. I learned a ton. Yeah. I but- mean, I was really grateful for that year, and I learned a great deal doing it. But it was um, it was a struggle. And then at the same time, Mark really wanted me back on <laughs> the Housewives. Starting in October, he would be sending me messages or calling me, you know, calling me, sending me emails like, is there any way you'd come back? And at first I was like, Mark, I never unquit a job in my life. Why would I do that? But then, you know, I was unquit having a, work- a job, never unquit no, a job. No. Yeah. And so I was like, you know, I'm having a really good time. But, but it was a struggle. Mark wanted me back. So I was in this weird place and I was having breakfast with a friend of mine, an actor. And Mark called me and I like screamed the call or something. She said, what's going on? And I said, they really want me back on Housewives and I don't know what to do. And she said, you should tell them you'll only come back if you can direct a couple. And I thought. That is the brilliant zero-sum solution. Now, had this been in the back of your mind all this time? Well, I had always thought. I mean, I came here to do something. Right. And I always thought at some point, you know, that's something I really should try because it is what I came here to accomplish. Um, And it's scary. And as I said, Larry, scary is really good for me. I gravitate toward things that I'm not, that I haven't mastered. Well, it doesn't seem like it scares you in the same way it scares other people. It seems like you recognize that it's a departure for yourself, but it doesn't seem like you're intimidated by the process of something new. Are you? Well, intimidated in a good way, in a way that I associate with learning. All right. You know, like they say that, you know, pain is fear leaving the body. Right. You know, I associate that anxiety with learning and growing. And so it scares the shit out of me. I had, when I directed my first Housewives, I had a headache for six months. It wouldn't go, I thought, it's the brain tumor. Preceding or post? Before. Okay. Before. In the six months from when Mark said yes to when I actually called action, I had a six-month headache. And I thought, oh, the brain tumor that killed my mom has come to get me. I swear to God, that's what I thought. 
it was just stress. I was just anxious, wow. you know. But anyway, so I said, so anyway, I thought, I said to my friend, I said, that's a great zero-sum game because if he says no, I have the perfect out. And if he says yes, I have a scary new adventure. Sat down with Mark, talked about the show, said, yeah, I'd like to direct him. He said, oh, I can make that happen for you. It was that simple. I love you, Mark. <laughs> and it changed my life again. Yeah. So I went back. And I did another two years on the show, and I directed a couple. Of, I directed three, three or three or four. I can never remember. I did a few. I did several. Can we call three several? Four? Sure. Yeah. I, I think did so. a bunch of episodes, and I learned so much, and I'm so grateful for that opportunity. And suddenly, I was a director. Twenty five years after I came here to do it, um, and so that was my last staff job, Desperate Housewives. I mean, since then, and that's what two two years ago, three years ago that that went off the air. Since then. I've been doing a lot of directing. I did 11 episodes of Mom, as I said. Uh, I directed Bob's show, Way to Go. I did the web series, Husbands, which you can go see at husbandstheseries.com, I think. Um, and I'm writing pilots. And pitching. And You're pitching. out there. Yeah. Yeah. I Are mean, you pitching? I'm, I am. I have a lot of stuff in development. The last two years has been a time of tossing dandelion seeds into the wind. <laughs> and now everything is sprouting. And I have- All at the same time? All at the same time, yeah. which is- daunting to be honest i got the go ahead i'm writing let me think about this i'm actively writing three different pilots right now oh as a matter of fact when i leave here i'm going to go work in fact we need to let you leave yeah well is but 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 you are behind the camera now you are directing is the italian cinema inspired yeah partially dance uh, college (laughs) major is that is that 18 19 year old satisfied with with, oh i'm never gonna i'm never gonna be sad really I don't think I'm ever going to feel completely at rest. And it's only, you know, I turned 50 recently, and I have only recently come to understand that the demon that drives me is not going anywhere. You well, know, What's it, the demon? It, the, the sense that the party is somewhere else. The that there's more, Yeah, there's yeah. more fun to be had. Yeah. That, like, there's no experiences <laughs> to have. But you enjoy, I mean, you call it a demon, but you enjoy the process. Yeah, but it, it's, it's Other torment. than the six-month it, headache. It's torment, too. Yeah. It is. Well, it's hard. Things like these are hard or else everyone would be doing them. <laughs> I have come to terms with the fact that the ambition and the drive and the, the need for new experiences uh, is a blessing and a curse. It drives me a little crazy. But at the same time, look at what I've been able to do. Oh, my God, the people I've met, the experiences I've had. The fact that being a writer gives me entree to try or do anything like that's the best thing. Just to broaden the scope of this for just one second. If I want to be an architect, I can write a show about being an architect. If I want to be a photojournalist, one of the things I'm writing right now is about being a photojournalist. I love photography. Like the road not taken for me in a lot of ways is being a photojournalist. I'm writing a show about being a photojournalist. I can inhabit any world I want to inhabit, and God, what a gift that is. And so – and all the amazing people that I've gotten to meet as a result of this job. I mean I got to talk filmmaking with Sidney Pollack toward the end of his life, and I got to – you know, I got to write jokes for Madonna. Like, what <laughs> What universe does a kid from the Atlanta suburbs get to do these things? It's a, I'm so grateful. And so I got to, I got to love the demon, you know, because as much as it drives me crazy, it's taken me on this unbelievable ride, which I sincerely believe the best part of the ride is still ahead of me. Yeah. It's so, not, it's not restlessness. I think you are. You uh, it, that thirst for knowledge and and the you equate that with the uh, maybe it's an addiction to being scared and yeah. then overcoming that little obstacle. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like if you if you try something that you know how to do, well, yeah, 
But if you try something that's scary, that's like out of your comfort zone or something you didn't think you could pull off or something that you've always been intimidated by and you pull it off, then you feel like you've done something. You know, if I would always gravitate toward the hardest script, even when I was just working as a writer on other people's staffs, if there was one where it's like, this is going to be a tough one to crack, give me that one. Because like, then when you do it, you feel good and people love you up for it too, which is nice. But, uh, that's that's what I get off on. I don't make I don't try. I worry I sound like America's hero. It's like I don't no. think of myself that way at all. No, no, no. You you you've been so self conscious about sounding pretentious. What <laughs> what this is though is is this is what people need in all aspects of their life. This is why yeah. I do this podcast because I needed an outlet for the creative things that I wanted to do that nobody else would let me do. Yeah, and it, and and it wasn't so much scary as much as it was. I had to learn what that meant, how to get right. it out there, how to put it out to people, and and is anybody going to pay attention? Is is anybody going to care? But it's the thing that I get the most satisfaction out of, out of anything I do. That's great. So then, and that's that's scary in itself because nobody's paying me for it. And I'm not. Yeah, but you do it for the the, it's, the love. Yeah, and to and, like yeah. So and these are the things that to, to me just confirm. And also, as I'm raising, you know, still raising, yeah. I, I, you don't raise an adult. I, <laughs> my wife and I have to remind ourselves of that. Right. But to see somebody beginning the process of a creative career. Yeah. And it's a very different world than, than you or I came into as far as how you get to that place. Right. Um, and it, the great thing is, no matter what, everybody had... There is there is no answer. There is no template. There is no blueprint. There is no standard path. Right. And it just reminds me and my wife, who's painting now. Yeah. You know, oh, at, at this point in her life, uh, and our son, who's trying to figure out. Yeah. What he's supposed to be doing. Right. That matters to him. Um, everything you're saying, and everybody else says the same thing. It just confirms. Um. You may have thought you were going to do one thing. Yeah. It's probably going to be something else. And you can be absolutely satisfied with that. And you'll never be satisfied. Right. I mean. But I mean, isn't it great? I mean, one of the things, because I, like I said, as a parent myself, I think about, I, I think what you're doing is you're modeling a behavior. You're, you and your wife are modeling like, look, you can try stuff. Isn't that great? Like, look at the adventure you can send yourself on. You don't have to wait for somebody right. else to send you on it. Right, right. You know, you can actually create opportunities for yourself. I, I think mean, you kind of have, and more than ever, I think that you have to now. Yeah. I think you actually have to create I, your own art and yeah. and and find a way to let people know about it. Right. Because, um, and I think that Tom Hanks said this on a, a whole totally different podcast. Yeah. He said even, you know, when he was coming up, it was like, you did the work, you did the auditions, uh, and then you sat back and... You know, somebody found you. Right. <laughs> it, That's it right. It seemed that simple. Well, I've also, I hope what comes across, in addition to the fact that I, you know, I feel really lucky and uh, and I still have this ridiculous enthusiasm, <laughs> Un, ungovernable enthusiasm for what I do. But I am really grateful to all the people who, you know, trusted me. You know, I feel like, you know, one of the things that I've always tried to do is reward people's trust in me. Like, if you're, you know, even when it doesn't work out, like it didn't work out on Parenthood. Like, I really worked my ass off to, like, be a good soldier in Jason's army. And I think, you know, if you do that, then you earn the next opportunity. You know, I don't take any of this for granted. I really I feel, like, so fortunate to have had the ride I've had, you know, and and that, you know, that, that so many kind people have taken a shot on me. 
um, you know, Mark letting me direct and, you know, I mean, all these things are just like gifts to me. So I'm, I'm very, very grateful for it. And I hope that comes across in this. Well, That's you deserve it. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. You're a good man, Jeff Greenstein. Thanks, man. And Larry, this is way more interesting than Bob Cushell. Oh, well, yeah, that's what, that's what I, that's what I came in here looking that to was do. really the goal. Because look, honestly, Bob set the bar pretty low. So. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our ending. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Larry. Get a monkey. Get a monkey! Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. Hey.